Hello, I'm Joanna Lumley. I'm in my garden in London, and I'm walking down the garden path to the music room. In there, I'll find my husband, the composer and conductor, Stephen Barlow. Now, we've been married almost 40 years, and I think, however long you've been with someone, you have questions that you'd like to ask your partner. So this podcast is my chance to ask Stephen the questions I've always wanted to ask him about one of his and my greatest passions, classical music. Welcome to Joanna and the Maestro. Hello, Maestro. Welcome to this episode of Joanna and the Maestro. And we're back in the music room and on my left... I have the maestro. Maestro, say hello. Hello. So this is Maestro, who you know. But today the studio is just shining with an extra presence because we are lucky enough to have today with us Rob Bryden. Rob, thank you so much for coming. My great pleasure. And Stephen, what a thing to be in a marriage. And I know you've been married for a long time. <laughs> Here we go. And to be publicly <laughs> referred to by your wife as the maestro. Oh, it's I a very mean, recent thing, is, I have to tell you. That it's is Clive Tuller's idea. All men dream of. This is, this is wonderful. You should have another podcast, How to Encourage One's Wife to Refer to One as the Maestro. The maestro. Yeah. Yeah, the makes it something very different. Rob, we have a, a cross-pollination in our work mm-hmm. in that we both did sort of slightly solo performances, weren't they? Yours was called Marin and Jeff and mine yeah. was called Up in Town, written by Hugo Blick. Yes. In a funny way, it opened a door to, I think, a, I think we were breaking ice there, a bit breaking ground, don't you think? Well, yeah, it, it was. it's a project I'm really proud of. And what's interesting about it was the time when I did it, I was unknown with nothing to lose. The landscape looked so different. And here's this, for people that don't remember, there were a series of monologues set inside a minicab with a guy called Keith, who is separated, divorced from his wife, Marion. She's now with a Jeff. So it was the unreliable narrator. And he was a character that I'd had when I was in Wales on the radio. And then ran into Hugo again, who I'd been at college with, and we got together and we wrote these monologues. And it was Keith talking about his life and how he was on his own now without Marion. She was back in Cardiff. He was in London driving around. And you saw the world through his eyes and him putting a a gloss. He was heartbreakingly optimistic, wasn't he? That's right, yeah. He saw the best side of everything. Yes. It was an incredibly touching programme, and I think you were a a giant in it. And so when I sort of followed humbly, and I might just say rather shabbily in your footsteps, about a woman whose husband had left her, Mm. and she was just Mm. sitting in her room and talking to the the sort of three, three, the mirror, you know, they have a main mirror and then two little wings of the mirror. She was sitting there either putting on makeup or whatever, talking about the day. But I always had you in my mind and this extraordinary sense of confiding to the camera, a very one-to-one relationship, which we don't often get in our business. No. One of the things that I loved about it, and it may have been the same for you, was that sitting in the car, you knew your parameters. So you knew where the camera was. I had We had one camera. Fixed. Actually, one camera fixed. Mm. And I knew where the windscreen was and I knew where the side window was. And for comedy, because it was a black comedy, I find that to be a great thing and I can liken it to if you play a live comedy show and I, I've toured recently with a band and that, but there's humor in the show, but concert halls have huge 
soft spaces and ceilings and, and the lines can fly away and the laughs can. And the same, when I, we did a, I did a show with Julia Davis called Human Remains and there was a scene where we're on a beach and it really threw us because we'd written it in a room with hard surfaces. And there we were then playing these characters, saying these lines to a vast too big, too nothingness. Big, yeah. Yes. So so being in a car, and I would imagine for you being in being the bedroom, in a room claustrophobically with That's this. right. I found that wonderful yeah. because you knew where things were. You just said touring with you were doing something with a band. Yeah. What were you do? Do you play? Well, I can play a little bit of guitar, enough to make you laugh, but but nothing more. I did a show basically telling my life story and illustrating it with music because I'd wanted to do, well, I'd wanted, I want to do a musical, but it, it takes over your life. And I've got youngish children, so you can't, just can't commit to it. So I did that and I took it around Britain. I took it to Australia and, and New Zealand and it, and I'm taking it out again next year because I loved it. Yeah. Because I got to do everything that I like. Yeah. I could do the talking to the audience, the singing and the humour, but also, and this was the scary bit, some sort of heartfelt talking about the birth of my children. Mm. And that was quite scary as someone who's known for comedy because I think that people like you to be in your lane. Mm. And there is something dreadful about a comedy person saying, and now I'm going to sing. I mean, it, it can result in <laughs> raised eyebrows. You know, it's actually, but if you think about it, Rob, in the old days, almost everybody, impressionists, everybody ended the show with a song. Exactly. Didn't they? Comedians, exactly. everybody. Yeah. Even Morecambe and Wise, if you think, Bring Me Sunshine. I mean, everybody ended in a song. So if you look at clips of, say, the wonderful American comedian Don Rickles, and people over here might only know Don for his sort of talk show appearances, but if you went to see Don live, he had a full band, he had a pianist, and he would sing kind of patter songs and things. And when Barry Humphreys would tour yeah. over there, yeah. you had Andrew yeah. Ross on the piano in Australia, yeah. and he would come on and Edna would sing a song, Les would sing a song. It's part of a wonderful tradition. How does that happen, though? Do you just know that you will sing at some stage? How does it happen that, that so many of the people you're talking about all had musical gifts and my goodness, actually did it in front of a public. And where does that begin? Well, I think it's a bit like the kid that's good at keepy-uppies or football or whatever and has mm. great hand-eye coordination. You either have it or, or you haven't. And, mm -hmm. and if you have it, you, you follow that talent or that ability, don't you? Because certainly for me, I went, oh, I like, you know, so at school I did musicals because I could sing. I mm. wanted to sing. I loved it. You know, I loved mm. performing and entertaining people. So you just follow it. But then, as I say, you get to a stage in your career where you're known, you're not known for that. So I put it off for ages because I, I sort of feared the ridicule. I was saying, well, what are you, what are you doing? You can't, you can't get up and sing. So I put it off for a long time and then was sort of helped into it by a friendly producer who saw me guesting on another show with Joe Stilgo. You must yes, know yes, Joe. Yes. Yeah. I was doing yeah. a thing with Joe. Uh, and this producer said, well, you should do something like that. I said, well, yeah, I, I want to, but I just, uh, I said, you sort it out. And of course he did. And then and, and, and off I went. And it's been, I love it because it does encapsulate all the things that I love. Was like. your childhood in Wales? It was indeed. And is that part of the musical thing? I mean, it's such a tradition that we all say, oh, well, you're, well, Welsh, of course, what would mm -hmm. you expect? But what, what is it about the Welsh 
and the valleys and the music because it seems that there's nobody in Wales who can't sing or isn't in love with singing. Yes. Well, we're a very singular nation, aren't we? I mean, look at the the size of Wales. It's tiny. And then look at Mm. the number of Mm. world-class creative uh, people, mm-hmm. the, uh, so many of them, whether they're singers, writers, actors, poets. Actors, exactly. poets. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's quite something. And of course, we grew up with Eisteddfords. That's right. So for me, growing up, it was not at all unusual that on St. David's Day, on March the 1st, we'd mm. go to the local chapel yeah. and you'd yeah. compete in spoken poetry mm-hmm. and stuff mm-hmm. like that, choral speaking and, and all that kind of stuff. That was just normal. Now, that didn't happen anywhere else, mm. I don't think. Certainly no. not in England. a bit in Ireland. Well, yes, there's a, that, yeah. There's a huge festival in Dublin, massive, that I've judged a few times. That's huge too. Is it like an Estedford, with the Irish word for yep. Estedford, whatever you, well, it is? Well, except that there's no reading. There's no, yeah. it, it's, not, it's not about poetry. It is literally all about music. And then you're stunned by the yeah. commitment and by the confidence, because you, that's what I'm really talking about, the confidence. Mm. Is it? expected so you don't sort of shrink from the idea no you don't you don't shrink from it i mean i mean it, it appealed to some more than to others i wasn't a sporty person so mm-hmm. you know there'd be the sporty boys in the class mm-hmm. and they probably were not enjoying it as much as i was and vice mm-hmm. versa then when mm-hmm. we went to play sport mm-hmm. but it was just part of the culture and i think now when we see you know uh, the arts and music being sort of sidelined at schools, mm. it's a terrible thing because you don't have to do too much research to become mm. aware of all the massive yeah. benefits for society. Mm. So the kind of thing that we had, I think, should be in all schools. Do you remember, Rob, that in those olden days at assembly, quite often there were Christian schools or yes. so that you'd sing a hymn. Yes. But anyway, whatever happened, in assembly you'd sing. Yes. The whole school yes. stopped. I can remember Nobody that. Does it now. We had a teacher at school. I went to a little, I went to three schools when I was a kid. I went to a little independent, sounds nicer than private, day school <laughs> in Porthcawl, which just so happened that Eddie Izzard had been there two years before because his dad moved around a lot and he was there. Then I went to a, another little, very quaint, small, independent day school in Swansea called Dumbarton. Catherine Zeta-Jones was there, right? Then we moved to Porthcawl and I went to Porthcawl Comprehensive. So I had the the experience of both these types of schools. And Ruth Jones was there, who I would go on to do Gavin and Stacey with. But when I was at Dumbarton, that was where I remember assemblies in the morning. And Mr. Crute, who was the history teacher, my memory of him is that he was rather flamboyant, rather powdery. And he had uh, rings on his fingers and he would play the piano and he would do it with flourish. (laughs) And it was, it fell upon a summer's day when Jesus walked in Galilee. And we'd all be singing that, you know. (laughs) Now, I'm not claiming some idyllic setting that every kid was loving it, but I was. I thought it was terrific. Apart from kind of folk songs, which I think we all sang at school, Mm. What were the pop bands you followed or who were the heroes you had? Well, to start with, I was born in 65. I always loved melody. I just always loved melody and I always loved lyrics. I think it's interesting how many people you speak to who 
don't listen to the lyrics. Do you ever come across that? Mm, I've yeah. I spoken to what if mm. I've got a friend and I've I've turned him on to James Taylor, and uh, he said I never used to listen to lyrics, Rob, until I met you, and I've turned him on to James Taylor and Paul Simon, mm-hmm. right? And I'm mm-hmm. going to introduce him to Bob Dylan quite soon, and and I said what? Well, because to me, I remember when I was about sixteen or seventeen. When I got into one of my great loves, Bruce Springsteen, I bought The River, I brought the record home. I can remember it. It was a Saturday, Woolworths in Porthcawl, and it had a lyric insert. You take the thing out and you read the lyrics. Um, so on the river itself, those memories come back to haunt me. They haunt me like a curse. Is a dream a lie if it don't come true, or is it something worse? And my grandmother was with us, and I remember saying to her, I said, oh, this is like poetry. We go down. But before that, I loved all the kind of pop stuff, and I'm going to admit it. This is no time to Please pretend say Bay to be City cool. Rollers. Bay City Rollers. Well, you see, I just knew <laughs> yeah. my heart's all. Yeah. How did you know that? Yeah. I just knew it. I just David had that Cassidy. I remember April when the sun was in the sky, the light was burning in your eyes. Remember that song? <laughs> Daydreamer. I loved that, and I had friends who were into far more edgy stuff you know but i i found when new wave and punk came in punk stuff i just couldn't get my head around it was mm. just energy to me i view it slightly differently now but where there was melody i like that but i um did it, you ever play an instrument apart from the guitar it was a strange thing the guitar it's very curious there were guitars around and i remember i had one and i couldn't i couldn't strum it Rhythmically, I remember this vividly. It was a vicious guitar. The strings mm. were like cheese wire, mm-hmm. and I couldn't. It was struggle to hold it down, but I couldn't. I just couldn't do it. And then years later, I suddenly I don't know what had happened. I had the ability to 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 to, to have a rhythm, and a friend said, "Look, this guitar is killing you. Let me take you out, and we'll get a better one, <laughs> a softer one." But with the guitar, I got to a level, and I plateaued. And I am at that level, which is basically open chords and a bit of messing around. And do you do that when you're when you're singing with the band? Do you I do a bit of the show. There's a bit of the show I do. I've got a little set piece, a comic bit, where I get the guitar and I get somebody out of the audience and I give them a glockenspiel and they sit down lower than me for comic effect. <laughs> and I play, uh, I play the carpenter song close to you. Yeah. And they have to come in and play the glockenspiel for the uh, la, 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 la. Much hilarity, ideally, ensues. <laughs> do your children play, do you have music in the house at home? Around? Loads of music. Yeah. And again, a, a bit like when you hear people who don't listen to lyrics. I know some people say, oh, music isn't really, yeah, I don't really, don't really listen to music. Really can't understand that. I mean, it's on all the time in, mm-hmm. in our house. I mean, I subject my kids to Bruce, and but also jazz. I've got into jazz. It's what funny. Sort of, which jazz? Traditional? Uh, no, modern jazz? All sorts. I mean, 
it's funny how we come to things at certain times. Because I had the Miles Davis kind of blue. I had that on a CD for years. And I was told, this is the thing. Mm -hmm. And I could not, I could not get into it. I would put it on. I go, right, I'm meant to enjoy this. Mm -hmm. And I go, oh, no. And then one day, we were in France. I can remember it. And I put it on. I don't think I've stopped listening to it since then. I'm thinking of Flamenco Sketches, which is the last track on Kind of Blue. And the, you know, the piano and the trumpet melodies are sort of intricate. And, and you don't know. That's what I like about jazz is you don't know where it's going to go. And that has become, that was the thing that used to fox me about it. But now it's the thing that I love. So yes, there is music in our house all the time. And, and the kids, you know, I listen to stuff because of the children. So Do they have a different musical taste? Do they have more modern? I mean, yeah, oh yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, we all agree on, say, Coldplay. We love Coldplay, but they've got me into Sam Fender. Charlie Puth is, is an American, a remarkably gifted young guy who's got perfect pitch and can do all sorts of things. My youngest has got me into him. My 15-year-old will listen to a lot of rap. I struggle with it unless there's a melody to it, unless there's yes, it's difficult, a kind it? of more accessible rap. But if there's anger in it, I, I don't, I, I don't know. I don't want that. And then my 12 year old plays the guitar. He's, he's very good. He's, he's better than I ever was. He can, he can stretch the fingers and that he can, he can, he can do all that. You've got quite small hands. Yes, I have. Look at your little beautiful hands. Yeah. No wonder that horrible guitar hurt your little hand. My poor little fingers. Poor little <laughs> did, did, did classical music ever seep through the walls sometimes? Sometimes a bit of it? Uh, my mum would play the beginning to... Furelise. Furelise, not Claire de Lune. Furelise. Yeah, yeah, yeah. She, we had a piano. We had an upright piano. She would, she would play that. I, all I remember is it being that introduction. I don't yeah. remember it going on too far, but she well, would do that. that introduction happens a lot. Yes. <laughs> yeah. I, I, and maybe the entertainer. Maybe that. I have a memory of that. But I don't remember there being much classical music. I always think when you, you share these memories from your childhood, you can be doing your parents a disservice from yeah. what you don't remember. I you know. know. You can picture them listening. What are you talking about? We used to play <laughs> my grandparents had a, a quite a, a big house in a place called Baglan, Port Talbot in South Wales, and they would rent out rooms to lodgers and things, but it had a veranda and it had French doors. And I have memories of the summer in the 70s and Wimbledon being on in, in the afternoon and you know, these lovely cinematic memories. They had a radiogram, one of those old yeah. ones, and it had some records and I think was Moonlight Sonata. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. That, that was my first record. Really? Yes. So that was, that was in the there. first one I was allowed to buy with my father. And I can still see the picture on it. And it give was a, Albert Ferber. Oh, no, no. Because oh, come you, on. <laughs> no. Yes. We all know how it goes. 
Yes, we that, we all know bit... that. I was rather brief. That's like my mother <laughs> with uh, Fleur de Lis. You yeah, yeah, went to that, that with much love and tenderness, didn't you? Just when you know this one. Look, no, we, look we, had this, we had this one time before. Now, the trouble is I don't remember melodies and things very specifically. However, I remember orchestrations of, uh, you know, Rimsky-Korsakov. I know who's playing what and I can, but I don't remember melodies. And you very, very nastily told me, well, as usual, you've gone, you've gone off and started inventing. And I have. <laughs> <laughs> well, I thought, now, Moonlight Sonata was, uh, do you remember the Peter Cook and Dudley Moore sketch, yeah. The Piano Teacher, where Dud is the Welsh piano teacher <laughs> and Pete says, ah, oh, Mr. Glenn Ferry. Oh, hello, boy, come in, come in. And he goes, now, Mr. Glanferry, um, I believe you give piano lessons. That's right, yes. Now, I want to, um, it's my wife's birthday coming up, Tuesday week, and uh, I've got an orchestra in, and I'd like to learn to play her Moonlight Sonata. And he goes, Moonlight Sonata by Tuesday week? It was a bit of a tall order, boy. <laughs> and he's, and I, I could go on. It's, uh, it's, I wish uh, you would. <laughs> it's, well, he says, um, he, says, uh, he says, now you listen to me, Mr. Glanferry. Um, well, I've learned nothing is impossible in my life. Now let's just get, he goes, you've got to realise it's not about money. He said, you just, uh, I could get you Blackbird Gavotte with one finger by Tuesday week, but beyond that... <laughs> And he says, and he says, I like the cut of your. He goes, it's integrity. You see, integrity. You, you can't, I can't cut the corners. And he says, integrity. I like the sound of that, and I'm willing to pay for it. And so he names another price, and Dud goes, now you're talking, boy. <laughs> it's a wonderful, it's a wonderful sketch. I'd forgotten all the brilliance of those things. Those are funny sketches, weren't they? Oh, those guys were. Those guys were the best. If you have a query for me or the maestro, we'd love to hear from you. So do get in touch with us on hello at joannaandthemaestro.com. And that's it. Now, back to the programme. Are you an Elvis fan? Oh, hugely. Do you sing like Elvis? I do a bit in the show in the, in the second half, if people are interested. They only want to come after the interval. Um, <laughs> where I talk about him through the years and I do some some jokes, you know, and I do an impression of him and everything. And then I say, I'm going to sing this song that he did near the end. And it's, he, he did a, he recorded the song Hurt. Do you know that one? No. I'm so hurt to think that you lied to me. And it's got a big end. Never ever heard you. You know what I mean? So I, I do that. There's a clip of him singing it live and his, his voice goes up super high and a gorgeous harmony line running through those high bits. I would never He died when I was 12, and he was then everywhere. Prior to that, I'd love to say I love melody. And I remember the, the beginning of King Creole, do, 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 and then those voices. I thought, well, that's quite nice. So, and we had, the old, we had that 40 greatest hits that had come out before he died. Mm -hmm. Came out in about 75, I think. I think it was Arcade or KTEL, and I had that record. And then when, when he died, he was everywhere, and that's when I really got into him. And now, you know, I'm, uh, oh, yeah, I could sit an exam on Elvis. Aren't we so lucky to love him? So could my wife. I know, well, I know yeah, that. And I, yeah, don't yeah, know, yeah. I don't know as much as you do, but I just love him 
deeply and hugely, and I love him. Funnily enough, I did a documentary about him. I know you did. Yes. Did you, did you, yes, did you yes, know yes. that? Yeah. Well, I, I found out how unbelievably generous he was yeah. and humble right until the end. So although he looked braggadocio, he was not. He wore a million golden rings. Mm. But if you went, Elvis, I love that. He said, do you like that? And he'd take it yeah, off and give it to you. Yeah. He'd buy you a car. He'd do anything. He loved life. He loved stuff. Yeah. He sort of was... But the range of his, the, the voice, oh, the, the voice. range of his voice in that he could do, I call them his kind of Neapolitan, I don't know if that's the right word, uh, song. Mm. So in the in the 60s, when he was doing the movies, which are often derided, and but within them, there are some lovely performances where he has that high that kind of voice, very mm-hmm. soft. There's gorgeous stuff there. And yet that's the same person then who in, say, the 68 special mm. is so raw yeah. and boom. And then you get to the 70s and it becomes a little more kind of, this big, this time you gave me a mountain, or his mm. version of mm. the Righteous Brothers. You've lost that loving feeling. Mm. And it's not operatic, but it's so, it's, it's, it's huge. I mean, I could talk about Elvis forever. You're trying hard not to show it Baby Baby, I know it You lost that love and feeling Oh, that love I spoke to some of the old musicians who'd worked with him. Mm. And they said the most extraordinary thing was that he could go from this, what they called the little boy voice, yeah. mm. like a little kid singing really light and sweet. And then within minutes, be straight into a huge, huge volume. They thought as a musician, they really loved him. Yeah. He was as fast as a whip. Yeah. He, he was acutely musical. He could listen to things and understand it. He was very generous too. So when he was singing with big bands and somebody was wrong, he'd never say that was a duff note. Yeah. He'd somehow get it all to be done again and somehow just gently. Yeah. He, he, he was a, a sweet and a kind man. Well, you can, you can nowadays, and you can find this on YouTube, it's possible now, this software that anyone can buy that can strip the vocal out of any recording. It's yeah. a form of AI. Yeah. Yeah. I've heard some just bare Elvis vocals and, oh, it's mm. gorgeous to, to hear. Do you know the greatest loss in our lives, Rob, is that I will always love you yeah. Oh, Dolly yes, Parton. I know. That's right. Yes. And yeah. it was Colonel Parker who did that. He wanted to do it more yeah, than anything. Yeah, yeah. Colonel Parker insisted that they had, you had half to of the have rights. The publishing. You had to have fifty percent of the publishing, I believe, or or maybe all of it. And that's why the quality of the songs that Elvis got wasn't always as as uh, high as mm-hmm. it. But a lot of the stuff around Elvis wasn't as high a quality because I don't think Parker saw him as an artist. No. Parker no. didn't, I don't no. think, in my opinion, had much of an artistic bone in his no. body. He was a promoter, which I think that Baz Luhrmann's film makes the case for quite quite yeah. convincingly. Yeah. He was a promoter. And of course he had this amazing artist, but he didn't treat him as an artist. No, what I regret most is that if he had... Ten years before he got absolutely locked into Las Vegas yeah. and just how many shows a week? Eight shows a week for oh, at least, God I mean, knows how many years. That would have been the time when he would have been looking for new yeah, pastures, yeah, new yeah, ideas, yeah. new new. That's what always happens with every artist. Well, he had the opportunities. You know, they Barbara Streisand wanted him for the Chris Christopherson role in The Star Is Born. And again, this is now all third, fourth uh, generation of these stories, but. 
my belief mm. is that uh, Parker didn't want him to share billing with her. You know, they, you know, he's he's the main guy, yeah. and that would have been a lovely stretch for him. He was a artistic. good actor. Oh yeah, in, in the right in the, in right, the right role. Mm. Yeah, in the in the right role with a decent script. But yeah, a remarkable. I just always was amazed at how I haven't tired of him because I've been listening to him since I was mm. about twelve years old. Mm. In all my favorite artists, they become friends. So Bruce Springsteen, James Taylor, Paul Simon. It's like being with a friend and, and you feel they're talking to you. Rob, we've got to come to an ante. I hate it. But <laughs> no. what I want you to do is, is leave. To, what? No. No. <laughs> is to choose the Elvis song we could go out with. Oh, sweet Lord. Well, it's, you know, yeah, um, choosing one song is okay. so hard. Don't get difficult about this. What I'm trying to say is. Well, Rob, I'm going to choose one. Yeah. What, one that we're going to sing or you're going to play? What's going to, are we going to listen to it? What, no, what, no, no, no. Or just no. mention we'll, it? We, we, we can mention it, then we, Then it will be played. If I'm going to pick one Elvis song to play us out with, I mean, where do you begin? I, I'll deliberately choose one that most people won't have heard. Uh, Good Time Charlie's Got the Blues. It's uh, he sings it beautifully. His voice is so clean and flexible. Um, but it's also... The musicianship is terrific and the production, because some of those 70s records can be a bit muddy. But this is... Um, this has got just a lovely production feel and a, the way the guitar cuts through is gorgeous. Excellent. Rob, thank you so much for being thank with you. us. My great pleasure. Is gone away. Said they're moving to LA. There's not a soul I know around. Everybody's Some caught afraid, some caught a plane. You've been listening to Joanna and the Maestro, a cup and nozzle, burning bright productions, and Bauer Media Show. It's presented by me, Joanna Lumley, and my husband, Stephen Barlow. Our executive producers are Matt Everett, Graham Hodge, and Clive Tullow. The show is produced and edited by Hunter Charlton, and mix and mastering is by David Bloor. Our head of production is Rebecca Mills. Our production manager is Sarah Anderson. And our production coordinator is Maxim Taylor. All music for the intros is supplied courtesy of Naxos Music UK. In this episode, you heard the following music. The River, written and performed by Bruce Springsteen. The publisher was Sony ATV Music Publishing. And the record label was Bruce Springsteen. Flamenco Sketches, written and performed by Miles Davis. The publisher was Downtown Music UK Limited. The record label was Sony Music Entertainment. Hurt, written by A. Jacobs and Jimmy Crane, performed by Elvis Presley. The publisher was EMI United Partnership, and the record label was 2007 Sony Music Entertainment. You've Lost That Loving Feeling, written by Barry Mann, H.P. Spectre, and Cynthia Vale, performed by Elvis Presley. The publisher was Abco Music Limited and Screen Gems EMI Music Limited. The record label was Sony Music Entertainment. Good Time Charlie's Got the Blues, written by Danny O'Keefe and performed by Elvis Presley. The publisher was Warner Chappelle North America Limited and the record label was Sony Music Entertainment. <laughs>